and welcome to this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. I am your host, Jasper, at Jasper underscore CH on Twitter. And joining me this week, we have got... Nick Garland, at NPJ Garland on Twitter. Uh, Michael Borden, at Michael J. Borden on Twitter. And uh, Morgan Jones, seeing as we're doing last names. Uh, yeah, you don't need to know my Twitter handle, it's not very interesting. But I'm sure you can find it if you try. Um, <laughs> um, welcome everyone, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, we're recording this on uh, Saturday afternoon uh, of April 4th. It's a lovely day outside, shame none of us can actually go outside. Um, and Keir Starmer has been elected as the new leader of the Labour Party this morning with 56% of the vote. Uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey has come in second uh, with just under 30% and Lisa Nandy has come third with around 16%. But if you're listening to this, you probably knew that anyway. Um, So we're going to be talking about, in this first section of the podcast, about why Keir Starmer won and also why Rebecca Long-Bailey and Lisa Nandy lost, as it were. So let's just jump straight into it. Um, Why did Keir Starmer win? Quick round fire response from everyone i mean i think the main thing is uh keir starmer really is kind of where the sort of center of gravity for the labor party is um it's possible if you spend a lot of time on the internet uh, or actually to be honest if if you do an awful lot of activism to have a slightly skewed sense of where the center of um gravity in the labor party is um with people who are kind of very angry on either side but actually i think that he Um, is where a lot of the voters who voted for Jeremy Corbyn the first time were, which is sometimes um, they're a bit less engaged, but mostly they are socially liberal. Um, They are pro-membership of the European Union and um, they support a kind of broad um, left liberal social democratic politics, um, which Keir Starmer represents. Yeah, I think that's a a really good point that if, if, if you spend too much time in the kind of real dark gritty twitter core of the party or even the people who act like the labor doorstep is a kind of sacrament of which for my like total like total candor that's me you got it was very easy to get a false sense of what what people actually think and i remember the moment where i thought you know a lot of people i i knew um were very ardently supporting lisa nandy who i thought was a very very strong candidate but the moment I realised that she didn't have a hope in hell was when I saw a picture of her phone bank and I realised I knew every single person in it um, and her like kind of mass mass phone banks she was doing in London. And yeah, I mean, that's not realistically, you know, she might have been the the hack's choice. In many ways, a very fine choice, but you can't, you can't win with that kind of base. So I think basically Keir was able to, you know, form like a really broad electoral coalition within the party and for a lot of people who are like really plumbed into you know labor twitter or just labor activism generally you've kind of got like this mass unknown within the party which is the membership writ large and you know the kind of voting population within that the kind of boomers within that population who don't really you know do much activism but are still you know a key part of you know the labor party's internal processes kind of just bought into the positivity bought into the idea that we should stop scrapping with each other so much and i think that you know the the kind of unity message was was pretty big um in this campaign yeah i think it's quite easy to get into the idea that you know we became a mass membership party post jeremy corbyn and that that mass membership was you know was composed of you know students and the youth vote and you know generally younger 
younger people um and in reality that that wasn't the case and i think there was i'm probably going to get this wrong but i do remember reading that there was something out from the the queen mary party membership program that said that the average age of of joining members under uh, in the corbyn in the corbyn wave as it was referred to was 51 so i mean i think it was the narrative was more the narrative of that was more appealing than the reality, perhaps. Yeah, I I think, and I don't know if this slightly preempts what might be the next question, but I think, uh, in a way, the most interesting question is why Jeremy Corbyn, uh, and I guess what we might kind of conventionally think of as sort of Labour's hard left, um, won such resounding victories in 2015 and 2016, rather than why Keir Starmer, who is kind of completely in line with the mainstream uh, of the Labour membership and of the PLP, um, won exactly the victory that you might expect uh, a candidate with an incredibly impressive CV and those politics to win. Um, and I think, you know, I think we should really focus on why those were exceptional. And um, the answer is that in 2015, it was incredibly hard to see how any of the other candidates were going to win a general election. And they all looked like they were basically trying to actively um, turn Labour members off um, by kind of, uh, taking tougher positions on on things that that Labour members didn't like, like migration and welfare, um, and I think then in twenty sixteen there was basically an election that was entirely about um, what was perceived as this kind of breach of trust by the PLP, this kind of condescension of the membership, um, and and kind of this sense that like Owen Smith wasn't a particularly serious candidate. And in that case, Labour members do did what, you know, generally they do, which is they showed loyalty to their leader. Um, and I think those are kind of like the interesting things, uh, all the kind of exceptional things um, in terms of Labour politics in the last five years. In a way, um, this is kind of, you know, like the archetypal Labour Party internal election decision. I think the most interesting point actually uh, might be how those NEC results came about, which to me feel slightly more exceptional. Morgan, the the anecdote you mentioned about um, Lisa Nadi's phone banking um, and you recognise that everyone there is is really interesting and I suppose sort of encapsulates um, what a lot of us have been thinking about with regards to um, Twitter spheres and, and digital circles and so forth. Um, but I, I guess what it basically is, is Lisa Nadi didn't successfully build a big enough electoral coalition to win. But... As you also said, and as a lot of people have said, um, there hasn't been a lot of there hasn't there hasn't been a recognition of her as a weak candidate at all. As you said, she was a very fine candidate, um, the hacks choice, as it were. Um, you know, there were those uh, TV debates where the audiences were audience were asked to um, you know, put up your hand for whichever candidate you think performed best, and Lisa Nandy would win them. Um, so I don't think there was a sense that Lisa Nandy was a weak candidate, but then that begs the question of why she didn't do better, certainly why she um, didn't pick into Keir Starmer's vote more. Yeah, um, so I think, um, in a way, seeing the Nandy campaign as unsuccessful seems a bit uncharitable. I think there was a an incredibly small window for a kind of outsider candidate to make a strong impression. So much of the institutional machinery fell behind Rebecca Long-Bailey or Keir Starmer. Um, and then we had this really weird situation where despite the fact that this election felt so long, um, the debates didn't actually arrive until really late in the day. Um, Nandy went on Andrew Neil really early on, but actually there was quite limited 
um, exposure for the candidates. There wasn't kind of that opportunity like in 2015 where quite early on it felt like the race was a bit stagnant and then Corbyn kind of breathed all this life into it in the Newsnight debate and suddenly everything changed. Um, I don't really feel like there was an opportunity for that to happen. So I'm not sure if that's really a failure of Lisa Nandy, um, but she just had really long odds. Um, the other thing is, I think that I went into this contest thinking that I think Lisa Nandy is this really uh, interesting politician. She's got lots of ideas. I've seen her speak at conferences and gone, wow, you know, um, this is great. She's got lots of really interesting ideas about Labour's coalition. Oh, look, she's referenced Eric Hobsbawm. You know, it's the kind of thing that someone like me um, found like really quite exciting and engaging. Um, and actually, slightly to my surprise, I thought that the ideas put forward by her campaign didn't necessarily hang together as well. And I was potentially slightly disappointed that there wasn't the development on her arguments about devolution and then kind of these arguments about kind of bridging cultural divides and all these things, um, which I thought would be her greatest strength. I was a bit disappointed by those. What I was really impressed by was she was the best communicator in the contest by a million miles. And um, I think that, that one of the things that we have to say is that all bits of the Labour Party, uh, when choosing candidates, quite often undervalue um the, the gift of being a, a kind of talented communicator, which is so important to politics and, and maybe we should place um, more emphasis on. Yeah, I think you're probably right, Nick, in that it is a bit, it's uncharitable of me to describe Lisa Nandy's campaign as th that, you know, she was not, it's, it's wrong to say that she wasn't playing to win, but she was probably playing a different kind of game to what Keir Starmer and, and Rebecca Long-Bailey were, who were obviously very much, you know, I am here to, to, to win. And... Yeah, I think I think I would also agree that like I I too found I think it's inarguable that she was by far the most impressive communicator, and by far the most kind of eloquent and striking speaker. But yeah, so she she has really good ideas about positive communitarianism and really in, has really interesting uh, things to say. But I didn't find any of her policy announcements or any of her kind of I didn't find any kind of distinctive policy planks to be really excited by. Like I thought, for example, Rebecca Long Bailey in the last week or so coming out with um, coming out with things about a national food service was was something that was really striking. And um, but Nandi didn't quite do that as as well. I thought. Yeah, so I I I do definitely think that Nandi's campaign was was certainly like I don't know. Like I I, I felt really really positive dealing with it, and it was just like I. I kind of watching on as someone who was you know giving her my second preference and, and not necessarily and not campaigning for her it was something that I definitely felt that she had her finger on the button of, of a lot of the most pressing issues and I think the fact that she was like willing to come out and just say look if, if we're not careful we're really on our last legs here and a lot of people are being far too optimistic about kind of the state of the party and I think that realism was something that was really needed in the kind of you know, debate of the leadership election. But I think she really did, um, unfortunately, as, you know, kind of, I always talk about bloody devolution, but she really did fudge, I think, um, and, and fumble what could have been quite a cohesive and coherent argument about more substantive devolution to Wales, to Scotland, to Northern Ireland. And talking to people in, like, in Scottish Labour, and Welsh Labour especially, the kind of line on... Um, independence was went down like a bag of sick in terms of being really really combative when a lot of you know the kind of welsh labor establishment certainly want to be you know more um, you know collegiate with people who are you know up for independence so i think that you know it probably isn't a statistically significant number of people um but you know 
it was definitely enough people to be like, oh, hang on a minute, you know, we've got a rising tide of, of indie sentiment here in Wales, we're completely decimated in Scotland over the issue, being compatible on the issue, and rather, rather than kind of just continuing the fudge, but in a more eloquent manner, um, feels like maybe something, a, a losing strategy to a sense. So I think that was definitely somewhere where her campaign dropped the ball because it seemed like such a, a natural extension of, you know, the kind of town, you know, all, all the rhetoric around towns and local communities and the communitarianism, like um, like Morgan pointed out. Yeah, I th- so I think uh, kind of just, just in response to what um, Morgan and Michael have said, um, I think that there's a real difficulty with policy in this contest, which is that normally um, you can pull out a few exciting sounding headline policies and they can sort of spell part of, you know, this narrative that you're telling about the kind of country you want. Um, The problem that the Labour Party and the Labour candidates had in this particular contest is that the 2019 manifesto basically wasn't a manifesto. It wasn't kind of a set of proposals about what Labour would like to do in a five year term in government. Um, the manifesto was more like a wish list of everything that you think you might like the Labour Party to do. And it meant that really um, the entire contest was about what would you drop from it rather than there being very much space um, to kind of positively differentiate yourself from the field. And um, I think as the Starmer campaign showed, ultimately, elections aren't really about policy. They're about the story you tell um, and the policy kind of furnishes that. Um, and I think that, that one of the things Labour really needs to think hard about is is kind of, you know, we have so many tests for our leaders which are based around what are your exact policy commitments, but how do we reconcile that with the fact that actually what we need is a clear story about the sort of country we want, um, about how we think we can achieve it, and um, the kind of policy announcements that we foreground rather than the ones that we say we would like to do in government need to kind of lend ballast to that overall story. And I think sometimes... Um, we think that everything is a policy checklist and it can be a really big problem, especially when realistically you cannot do everything in a five year term. Um, and then on the point about devolution, I just wanted to say basically, um, I agree that devolution is really important. I'm also deeply bored of hearing people acknowledge the need for devolution. Um, but then we just kind of float around without a clear framework. Um, and then we hit a problem, which is explaining a clear framework for devolution uh, is pretty boring um, or it's kind of hopelessly utopian and unrealistic. And I don't quite know what to do with the debate about devolution, except acknowledge that it's important, uh, get some wonks thinking about it, and then, you know, kind of, like, um, move on. Let's talk about Rebecca Long-Bailey. Let, let's say one of us travelled back in time to, let's say, late 2019, uh, maybe before the um, December election, or maybe after, I'm not sure whether it mattered, um, and said, oh yeah, um, Keir Starmer becomes leader of the Labour Party, and the Corbynite, uh, Corbyn-anointed candidate um, only manages 27% of the vote um, in comparison to his 56%, um, and also the Corbyn wing of the Labour Party lose a slew of uh, NEC seats, also as of this morning. Um that would have been sort of quite a shocking and surprising thing to hear, and yet it has now happened. And um, basically, w- what I'm wondering is, is why didn't Rebecca Long Bailey do better? Was it a fault of her campaign specifically? Did she just run a poor campaign, or was there a more structural issue with regards to uh, the Corbynites' control over the Labour Party? And has is it a result of failures manifesting over several years? Yeah, so I think um, more than, well, I don't want to say more than any single thing. I think probably the reason, you know, the 
the absolutely shocking rebuke of uh, Corbyn at the 2019 general election is the main reason why Rebecca Long Bailey didn't win. But in terms of kind of internal internal politics, I think it was just the failure to, you know, we had all that faffing about with, is Ian Lavery going to run a kind of outside campaign? Is Barry Gardner going to run an outside campaign? And I think to be to be brutal about it, I think Rebecca Long Bailey was just not enough of a crank for her to bring the entirety of the Corbyn base with her. Um, like you can see Richard Bergen did very respectably um, in the in the deputy leadership race, um, peeling off votes presumably from from Angela Rayner, who was ostensibly on a joint ticket with Rebecca Long Bailey. If they had run that outside of campaign, it would have, you know, completely obliterated what she what the the share of the vote that she did get. Um, and that's a real shame because I think she she was a I think she was the best representative of that part of the party as a mainstream political force um that you could probably want really um there were criticisms for her campaign as low energy which it kind of was but then again none of them were like you know hers was low energy so was Keir Starmer's there's kind of two Rebecca Long Baileys that exist in the political imagination there's the kind of tribune version of Rebecca Long Bailey that was briefly trailed in that one article in which some of her kind of more combative supporters like to project, which is this sort of uh, RLBism or barbarism kind of like, Rebecca Long-Bailey is our last chance to avoid climate crisis. Um, you know, she will be the one who's going to take the fight. She's this kind of rabble-rousing leader. And then there's um, the kind of Rebecca Long-Bailey who, as far as I can tell, exists, uh, who I, I like a lot. I think she's basically a likeable uh, politician on the left of the Labour Party um, who doesn't instinctively rock the boat. And I think that um, the fact that she doesn't instinctively rock the boat is part of the reason why she ended up as the sort of Corbynite candidate, but it's also why uh, people who are more sceptical about Corbyn's leadership, like myself, think that she's basically um, a good thing and why she will probably be quite a constructive member of a Keir Starmer shadow cabinet. Um, but the problem with this is that I think she did kind of tie down the kind of more kind of um, hardcore Corbynite vote um, but she was basically fishing in exactly the same waters as Keir Starmer as this kind of constructive, um, you know, not particularly divisive um, politician who's very sympathetic with kind of most of the Corbynite platform. Um, and therefore, she couldn't really make any inroads against Starmer, um, who represented all of that very well. Also, people hate women. <laughs> that is true. Um, also, just quickly... Something which I noticed about um, Rebecca Long Bailey's campaign, um, which sort of gave me a lot of discomfort. I think when it started, I was very opposed to her campaign. Um, I didn't find her a particularly interesting candidate. Um, I thought there were better candidates that the um, left Corbynite wing of the Labour Party could have put up uh, to be leader. Um, but I, I found myself becoming more impressed with her as the contest went along. Not impressed enough to ultimately cast my ballot for her but uh i i i felt that she wasn't as died in the wall as i was um initially expecting um an example of that perhaps is i was listening to her interview on the new statesman podcast the other week and um she was sort of giving a, a different manifestation of, of universal basic income than 
some others on the left may have said or, or perhaps on the more utopian side of the left of her vision of it was more um an extension of existing welfareism for example um and you know but she 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 was she was sticking very much to this idea of um well you know we can't just sit around and do lovely artistic things all day some people do need to go to work and her initial pitch of like progressive patriotism i thought okay there's actually sort of divergences here um but equally i felt that the people running her campaign and some of the emails sent out by momentum kind of thing um were more reminiscent of, of the darker elements of the past few years of the, the labor party under corbyn's leadership and and i couldn't work out whether that disconnect was because of um was her sanctioning it or whether because she couldn't quite control um her campaign but regardless i i felt there was a disconnect there and it made me uncomfortable um with her campaign as it were so i, I think overall with with rebecca long bailey's campaign generally i think it obviously the kind of remarks of, of nick and morgan not oh, definitely with withstanding is the idea that just the kind of very fundamentals of it didn't necessarily work and throughout you know when you're voting for leader of the party you are definitely voting for a platform but you are also fundamentally voting for a person and a personality and in Keir's campaign obviously there are criticisms of him kind of being like you know a bit bit bland bit middle of the road but fundamentally like when you he was being communicated about you had like the idea of his history as a lawyer like you know that sort of thing with Lisa you had the idea of the you know of kind of wound up within her pitch for towns was the idea of like you know there are bits of this country that you know are completely left behind with the Labour Party I'm from these areas I'm representing Wigan you know I'm going to big them up sort of thing with Rebecca Long Bailey there was like a clear open goal to talk about like you know her as a person um and kind of her history with things and they just didn't they didn't really let the natural appeal of her as as a, as a you know her own candidacy come through at all and and her story come through at all and I thought that was that was a really miss open goal because I think it was definitely one of the best things about her was you know kind of her history within the labor movement and I you know I think that was a, that was really disappointing to to not have that kind of brought in as a metric in a meaningful way I think that that one interesting point um is kind of like the the sort of Rebecca Long Bailey base, which was in part a question of how do you build this kind of very broad base that reaches into what we might think of as the soft left or the middle of the Labour Party. Um, and then this kind of more like hard-edged, kind of like 2016 revivalist uh, strand who basically wanted to have a big fight with the PLP and have this kind of very combative leader. Um, I think one of the really interesting points is that this kind of more kind of combative, uh, I guess you might call it more hard left kind of bit of her support, also is completely divided on these kind of cultural issues, questions about the European Union. Their account of why Labour lost in 2015, which is the only account they can give which kind of doesn't really allow for any blame being put on a left-wing manifesto or on the leadership, is all about the question of Brexit. But it means that people like um, Aaron Bastani um, seem to basically be putting forward this argument that the problem with Labour is it wasn't representing Eurosceptic, socially authoritarian voters well enough. And wh you know whether, whether or not it's true that that was part of the reason Labour lost the election, it seems a very strange position to occupy in relation to the membership when you know that Keir Starmer is going to be on the right side of the membership on all those arguments.
Social Review Podcast. I'm sitting down with... Bambos Charlambos. I'm the uh, MP for Enfield Southgate. And we're just going to have a, a nice little chat about um, shadow justice things. But start, to start off, I was going to say, um, you were a whip for quite a long time. Um, you know, talk, talk about what it was like being a whip in one of the tightest parliaments in, uh, in it, a while. Well, it was quite exhilarating because you generally didn't know how a vote was going to go. Um, we were winning votes by, on occasions, literally one or two uh, votes, so it was really tight, and um, the whips work as a team, so you have your team meeting at the start of the day, and um, you often don't know what's going to happen. Um, there's a funny story about, well, it's funny now, but at the time it wasn't so funny, uh, we had a vote that was tied, um, it, it hadn't happened for over 30 years, and it, it was tied because one of my colleagues um, didn't hear the bell, so she was in an interview room in Norman Shore North, didn't hear the bell, missed the vote, and that vote was tied. Oh, wow. Um, there are other stories where um, we've won votes where Tory MPs have forgot to, that they had a proxy vote and forgot to cast the proxy vote, uh, and that's, that caused um, huge problems for them. Um, and uh, losing the vote and being a whip as well to be the one who's lost the vote for your side also wasn't good. So yeah, it was um, incredibly, um, you know, tense. But when you won a vote, it was like one of the best feelings in the world, especially because you'd had to speak to your flock and get them all there, and, and you'd felt you'd succeeded if you'd won the vote. Um, and do you feel there's going to be a big shift in in that dynamic now that there's a, such a different makeup of parliament? Like, how do you see? that changing? Um, yes, it's, it's so different now. So, you know, each vote now we've, we're losing by about 80 plus. So it's, um, um, which is quite, quite sad disappointing. So I think being whipped now, uh, there's still other things that we need to do that we, we do as whips, but on the actual getting the votes through, we're not going to win many votes, if any. Does it kind of, is this a role that enamours you of your colleagues or do you find people kind of skirting away from you in the bar thinking, oh God, it's a whip? I, th- I think generally at the last election people, sorry, prior to the last election, people did think the whips did uh, an incredible job uh, and they had a lot of respect for us because we were the ones that our job was to get the vote out mm. and make people get vote in the way we wanted the, the leadership wanted us to vote, so... So I think people do have a, a crunching respect for the whips. All right. Um, so you've now um, been made a Shadow Justice Minister. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you think going into this um, Parliament and Opposition, as you said, like the role the Shadow Justice team could be or what you would like to see it, see yeah. it be? Uh, I mean, certainly the, um, the government think they can get away with quite a few things. So yesterday was my first day uh, at the dispatch box for justice questions. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, and the thing that I asked a question about was about why they, they promised, they've cut loads of money from legal aid. Mm. They promised to put some money in for legal advice. Um, and they said they would do that by the autumn of 2019. And that hasn't happened yet. Um, so they were going to have these legal advice pilots and they, they just haven't happened because early advice really helps people so we'll have problems down the line. So this is in their document, which was published a year ago. So holding them to account on things like that is really important. 
So there are going to be opportunities where uh, we're like, well, you, you said this, you haven't done it, why not? And we need to make sure we keep the pressure on. I know quite a lot of people were quite kind of um, comparatively keen on David Gork and his his time as a justice minister for a, for a kind of a Tory justice for a Tory minister. Um, but now we're obviously in a in different parliament, different setup. What what's the kind of proposals that you would be most mindful of, or you'd be most worried by in that in that policy area? In this, I think the um, I think the Ministry of Justice has been cuts uh, year upon year upon year. So it's been easy pickings from the um, Treasury, um, but that's come at a cost. So we've seen um, the needs of the prison population, so things like the prison estates uh, needs urgent repairs, urgent works done. Probation, privatised probation was a complete disaster. They had to put more money into the probation service because it wasn't working, people were reoffending. Uh, and also legal aid's been cut to the bone. Um, People are on the same rates now. There are people who work in legal aid that they that were being paid 25 years ago, which is an absolute scandal. And we're losing uh, lawyers uh, who do legal aid work, you know, in their droves. So there's people are either retiring or not being replaced. So this is causing great concern for the future. So my concern is the uh, we are literally at a tipping point um, for all these areas, uh, and unless more investment is put in, then. Uh, we're going to go beyond the point of any return. Um, so you kind of mentioned this uh, in your answer, but legal aid has often been seen as something that's uh, politically easy to cut, or there's not politically, um, it's not politically toxic to to, to interfere with. Um, why do you think that is? Like, could you, um, and you know, how do you think we can make the the critical case for increased funding in this area? Yeah, well, I think one of the um, it's one of those things that unless you actually have to use it, um, you don't notice it. You don't realise that it's a problem until you actually need to um, to have access to legal advice or a lawyer. Um, so, uh, but then when when you do try and it's not available, then you realise that unless you have deep pockets, accessing justice is going to be really hard for you. Under the LASPO, the Legal Aid and Sentencing Punishment Offenders Act in 2012, it also introduced something called, I call it the innocence tax. So even if you're charged with an offence, um, you go to trial and you're acquitted, you still have to pay all your legal costs before you get that the state would pay for your legal costs. Now you have to pay for that even if you've been acquitted of all the charges. Um, there was a Tory MP who uh, was charged with uh, an offence but he was acquitted and he was still left with a huge legal bill uh, and he said if I'd known that was set in the bill I'd never voted for it but that ship sailed a long time ago. Mm. So I think it's it should be regarded like the, on the same footing as National Health Service, it should be there to provide help when you need it as a safety net mm. uh, and I think if people are more aware of, um, if they had to deal with legal cases um, through no fault of their own and, and funding wasn't there, then they would really notice it was gone. Okay. Um, some more intense legal aid questions. Um, so funding is obviously, as you've said, necessary and we need to have legal aid as a, as a universal service, as you've just mentioned. But a key problem with the criminal side of the legal system is that as it stands, there's a real focus on swift outcomes. Um, what do you think Labour should push for in terms of reforms for allowing defendants to get more time with their solicitors, um, but also just more broadly kind of 
for a more considered process? Well, um, yes, I think the I think you do need to have more time. I don't necessarily the government might want swift outcomes, but actually they the opposite is true sometimes. Mm. So um, I had a debate recently about uh, someone could release under investigation. So because the police were so under resourced that they couldn't comply with their conditions under the bail act, we got police bail. They're releasing people under investigation without any conditions at all, whilst they were trying to deal with issues around collecting evidence about uh, disclosure of documents and stuff. And, um, and so people were released on investigation for months and months. And so justice was actually being delayed because, you know, by the time they got round to charging people, um, over, you know, in some cases every year had, been, had passed. And then, only then were they charging, and only then was the illegal process kicking in. Um, so, and by which time, if you've forgotten what happened or your memory's hazy, that will also have an impact on uh, justice being delivered. So there are other areas, not just legal aid, that have been cut, which um, also have an impact in justice being swift. But So the government might talk the talk, but they certainly don't walk the walk. So for many kind of young law students, criminal defence law seems to be the least appealing of their options when they're going into when they're going into the profession. It's kind of often thought of as underpaid and overworked. Um, and how do you reform that system, including um, and beyond pumping more money in? Sorry, these questions were written by someone who understands legal aid very de- yeah. very deeply, and well, I do I not. Think, so I feel like I'm. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I think uh, uh, it's certainly. In, in, it's certainly not most, most. It's not the most rewarding uh, career, lucratively by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so people will, um, if they go into legal aid work, then it's not going to be financially very rewarding. But um, um, you are genuinely sort of helping change people's lives by the work that you do as a legal aid lawyer. Um, so there, the rewards are huge in that respect um, on, on a personal level but it shouldn't be a neither or so I think people should be properly paid for the work they do uh, and we should have proper remuneration for young barristers and solicitors um, and uh, and encourage them to go into the you know uh, the profession specialising in legal aid if possible um, So before becoming an MP you were a housing lawyer um, so in Ireland, where I'm from, we've just seen Sinn Féin mobilise quite successfully on housing as an election issue. Um, kind of, how do you think Labour is or isn't talking about housing in a in a positive way? And how do you think you would like to see that shift, maybe or not? Well, um, housing always has been uh, a huge Labour issue. Um, there's uh, people talk about, you know, what I hear in Live Evan was. But people forget that Mike Bevan wasn't just the health minister, he was also the minister for housing as well. So health and housing went hand in hand. And housing would solve so many issues. But they are different issues on a regional basis. So uh, they're also linked to employability, um, jobs, uh, income. Um, in um, uh, in London, in, in my constituency, I have lots of people come to my surgery whose problems are around um, being stuck in uh, temporary accommodation for years and years and not being able to move and then they, their families have grown so the accommodation is now no longer suitable for them um, but 
there, the council has very little stock to move them to. And that's partly because of the sale of council houses. Um, do need to build more, but then there are properties. I think Stoke uh, Council uh, was selling properties in the city centre for a pound. But the condition was you had to live there for at least three years. You had to have a certain amount of income. And that was an attempt to regenerate the area. So it, it seems crazy that, you know, the same house, the same house in London would cost about, I know, half a million, but in Stoke it would be um, a pound, but you'd have to live in it. So the, the, there is this disparity, we do need to invest more uh, in getting jobs in the north, so people don't feel the need to migrate to the big cities. Uh, and not just the north, but across the country where there are areas of um, um, great poverty, and we, we do need to make sure that the jobs are there, there is proper investment. Uh, and that there's a greater share, but the population is also increasing. So we do need to build more houses in any event, and we do need to build more social houses at an affordable rate. When my parents bought um, their house, it was twice their income. Um, now, a house would easily be four or five times their income, and it's so out of reach of people. Uh, and also, people don't have the long-term jobs. They're now in jobs that less secure so I think there need to be big changes there about home ownership as well um, and we also need to tackle um, security people who do rent uh, don't have the security that people have in other countries uh, in Germany it's quite common for people to rent but they have strong controls about being tenants which we don't have in the UK so I think those I think it's a combination of things so in short it's investing in more in jobs in areas that uh, have deprivation, um, building more houses, particularly social houses, uh, that are affordable, um, and uh, make sure that they're of decent standard, that they're not sort of um, rabbit hutches. And um, once you're able to sort out housing, you'll be well on the way to solving uh, a whole series of other problems as well. Um, so you mentioned a, a scheme that Stoke-on-Trent Council had there to sell houses for, for a pound. Um, I know you were a councillor for, for a long time before becoming an MP. Um, you want to talk about any kind of schemes and things done by, by Anfield Council or, um, yeah. well, you know, kind of how that's, how that's influenced your work as an MP? Yeah, um, so Enfield Council decided that what they would do was um, buy up some empty properties and um, use those for temporary accommodation. Um, and that way it was an investment in assets for the council for the future. Um, and um, uh, and they're also able to save money because temporary accommodation costs by private landlords were huge. So they're able to keep the cost down and have an asset that they were buying that would, uh, if they needed to in the future, they could like set it on and uh, recoup the money that they invested. And it's uh, been very successful. But um, but Enfield had to set up an arm's length company to do that because of various uh, rules about sort of rights and um, was about what councils can and can't do. Uh, they had to go down that route. But it was very successful and it certainly has helped. But it's not the long-term solution, but it, it helped in the short term. And do you think, do you, it's kind of a question that's come up a lot, a lot in the leadership race, that we should be looking more to councils for these kind of interesting ideas on how to solve things? Or? Yeah, 100%. I think um, councils uh, and councillors do uh, amazing work 
and I think they have been overlooked in the past by the Labour Party. Um, we do need to give them some more powers uh, and give them the support they need because they're best placed to represent the communities. Um, and I know councils have had their funding cut year upon year. Um, I think Entwell's had almost half its budget cut from the government since 2010, uh, which is a ridiculous amount. But we do need to um, give councils the support uh, and give them powers that hopefully will enable them to um, give improvements to their communities. Um, then just also on the leadership question, so in another thing that's been much discussed in this leadership race is talk about um, legalisation of drugs and um, kind of whether or not it's hypocritical for a politician to admit to have, have taken legal drugs themselves but not to commit to, to strong action on this. Um, do you think the Labour Party should have a make up its mind and stick to it on, on, a, on a drugs yeah. position? Or? Uh, I think so and I think the uh, I think they need to listen to the evidence. Uh, there's a lot of evidence out there. Uh, I've spoken to police officers who you know, just say the, the fighting and losing battle against um, drugs, they're, they're under-resourced. Uh, and we do need to th think seriously about um, whether our drugs policy is working and whether it needs to be uh, revised. Um, but we do need to listen to the evidence. Uh, we need to have a grown-up approach to this. Um, and you know, unfortunately, we we have too many knee-jerk reactions to um, the right-wing media. I, I'd favour an independent inquiry to actually look at all the aspects of drugs, in particular its connection to crime, its usage, its cost to the NHS, uh, and come up with a proper policy about it. Okay. Um... So we've talked a bit about housing and drug policy and various things, but kind of what do you remember as being the issue that first drew you into politics? Um. Um, I think generally it was uh, just accessing services for the community that uh, my parents are from. So my parents are from Cyprus, so the Cypriot community had difficulty accessing council services, not because they um, didn't, they, they weren't good services, it's just they they... Um, they had a language barrier, they had a lack of understanding about how services worked. So for me, uh, supporting communities accessing services was a big driver. Uh, but I've also been passionate about issues of justice and equality. So I've been, um, those have been things that I've been very keen to campaign on. Um, what do you think is the proposal from any of the leadership candidates that you found the most kind of exciting or you know it's kind of like that that's some really good policy like there have been some great policies uh, by all the candidates um, uh, I'm back in Keir Starmer for, for leader but I do think we need to bring the party together first of all and that's got to be uh, the criteria I think it's come out with policies right now um, at this stage because I, I think most candidates would agree with many of the policies um, that we, we need so certainly um, I think Keir's work in challenging decisions by government uh, around all sorts of areas, around justice, you know, prosecuting Stephen Lawrence's killers uh, when he was at the CPS uh, was uh, a very important issue. Um, but I think the, um, you know, I think we need to sort of focus on young people, um, you know, the 
uh, getting support for them, particularly for uh, things like mental health, but also for uh, activities for young people is a big issue for me. Uh, investing in education, obviously housing, investing in jobs, I mean, all, all these sorts of things. But I'm sure the candidates have good policies on those. But at the moment, we need to make sure that we're credible and electable. And I think we've got four years to work out our policies. Mm. So we need to work on that first. So you're, so you said you're back in case I'm in the You plan to answer, you plan to answer yeah. that, but um, what? You, you, because you think he's. Because um, I think he's, yeah, you know, he's done a big job previously. He's been excellent in the dispatch box. He's um, very smart. Um, and being a leader, you have to make lots of decisions. So he has been shown that you can take tough decisions. You know, I think he, I think generally he is somebody who people are very impressed by with his leadership qualities. Okay. Um, any thoughts on the, the deputy? I don't know. Uh, well, I'm backing Angela Rayner for deputy. Mm. Uh, I think if it's, uh, purely because if you want to counterbalance um, Keir Starmer as a leader, then no one has to be uh, a woman. And number two, she should be from the north, mm. in, in my view. Um, but uh, I've known Angela... I've got to know her quite well over the last two and a half years, um, and I think she her qualities complement Keir's qualities, and I think the two of them would be quite a formidable team. Um, vaguely wrapping up those things, we're kind of running to the end of our time, but um, just one last question that we ask, well, I try to ask everyone when I am interviewing them. What's the most uh, kind of punk rock thing you think you've ever done? The most punk rock thing I've ever done? Adeline Dodd said that it was a uh, thing like... Exercise classes, so really, it's oh, okay. Um, all kinds of all kinds of options are open to you in this one. Okay, um, it probably would have been okay when I was a student. I hitchhiked from Liverpool to Paris. Oh, that's quite so, uh, yeah. That was reasonably punk rock. Yeah, so that was um, a charity. We had a Southern African scholarship scheme for students from Southern Africa, mm-hmm. and it was to raise money for for those students. Okay, um, so yeah, so that was. Um, that's probably the most punk rock thing I've done, I think. Oh, that's, that's reasonably high in the metric of uh, MPs we've talked to thus far. Okay. No, uh, shade, uh, on, no shade on Adelisa. I'll tease Annalise later on, let's see how. Being insufficiently punk yeah. rock. another episode of the social review podcast draws to a close thank you so much for listening thank you very much to everyone who came on to talk and thank you so much to bamboss charlan boss uh, mp for coming on talking to morgan about all things shadow justice keir starmer has appointed his uh, shadow cabinet upon becoming leader of the labor party uh, and he appointed Annalisa Dodds as his shadow chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, and if you're a regular listener, you might remember that we interviewed Annalisa Dodds back in February um, about uh, tax policy, about her life working as a shadow minister of the Treasury under John McDonnell. And it's a really good interview, and I really recommend you go and listen to it because it should give you some idea of what her economic policy uh, could be uh, as shadow chancellor and what Labour's overall economic message could end up looking like under Keir Starmer's leadership. I was really, really good interview. I'd really recommend you go listen to it. As well as that, uh, Nick, who you'd have heard speaking at the beginning of the podcast, wrote a really good article uh, for us a couple of months ago uh, called Whatever Keir Starmer Is, He's Not Ed Miliband, kind of tackling that idea of circular history, which uh, tends to be prevalent within the Labour Party, that leaders embody tropes and characteristics and 
um, the functions as it were of previous labor leaders it's a really good piece i'd really recommend you go and read it um, and if you enjoy listening to the podcast uh, then we have plenty more stuff coming out the remainder of this week we've got plenty to talk about with regards to uh, Keir Starmer's ascension we're going to be talking about what Keir Starmer's Labour Party could look like in the short term uh, with tackling coronavirus as well as in the long term um, envisioning life over the next couple of years and that's going to be out in a couple of days so do keep an eye out for that one and in addition to that we're also going to be releasing an episode talking about anti-semitism within the Labour Party and what Keir Starmer should be doing to uh, tackle anti-semitism and ensure the Labour is not an anti-semitic party otherwise thank you so much for listening stay safe stay indoors bye-bye Thank you.